We're studying the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, and we're in chapter 14. Open your Bibles, navigate on your device to chapter 14 of the Revelation. The topic, three angels in the earth's atmosphere preach the gospel and warn men not to take the mark of the beast. The title of our message, Angels in the Atmosphere. Father, thank you so much for our morning. I'm always fascinated, Lord, by that uh, scripture in Hebrews where it says that you reach uh, inside of us between the soul and the spirit. You communicate with us there, a place that no one else can really reach. No philosophy, no psychology, no other person. Only you, by the Spirit and by your word. And so, Lord, we want to be those that have ears to hear what the Spirit says to us individually and to us corporately as the church this morning as we look at this wonderful chapter in your word. As always, we, we call upon you to be our teacher, your anointing on your word. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. What would you call Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Joey Bishop, and Peter Lawford? Gosh, you guys, you've got it. They were the Rat Pack, Frank Sinatra's posse. Artists and actors worthy of celebrity have an inner circle of folks that uh, are their posse, or if you prefer, entourage. We call Jesus the famous one, and he has a sizable posse in the Revelation. In verse 1, I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. As we move forward in this chapter, we'll see that the, test, uh, the text rather contrasts the 144,000 with the followers of the beast who it says receive his mark on their forehead or on their hand in verse 9. Then too, the 144,000 are not the only believers Jesus ever writes upon. He tells believers in the current church age, like us, I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. That's back in chapter 3 when we were looking at the churches. And so I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, walk with the Lord knowing you have his name written on you. And number two, talk to the lost knowing you have his fame to witness to them. Walk with the Lord, knowing you have his name written on you, verses one through five. Putting a bumper sticker on someone else's car that says something stupid, that, that's an okay prank. To stick one on that they might not even notice that shows up at night when lit with headlights from another car, that's way better. You can Google the details on the Instructables website, just don't do my car. The writing on the foreheads of the 144,000 may or may not be visible to people during the darkness of the Great Tribulation. One thing is sure, the light of Jesus Christ illuminates their witness and everyone on earth will see that they belong to him. Verse 1, then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. We met the 144,000 in chapter 7. It's not a symbolic number. They are 12,000 from 12 tribes of Israel. They are Jewish men, no women. They were sealed by God and rendered untouchable by their enemies. At the end of the great tribulation, 
we see them safe and sound and successful. Now, the revelation, as I tell you pretty much each week, is chronological as you follow the opening of the seven seals on the sealed scroll that Jesus takes from his father. The opening of the seventh seal results in the blowing of seven successive trumpets. The blowing of the seventh trumpet results in the pouring out upon earth seven successive bowls of the wrath of God. That's the chronology. Other notable events are interspersed as flashbacks or flash forwards in between the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. And so the whole book isn't necessarily chronological, but the flow of it is, and then there are other events that you fit in that John, the author, says that you need to be aware of. Lamb is John's favorite name for Jesus in this book. He is, of course, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What he accomplished once for all on the cross is enacted in the revelation. So he steps forward as the lamb, having finished the work on the cross. Remember, Jesus says it's finished when he died on the cross. He didn't say we're almost there. He said it is finished, but it's not really enacted until the future and the and the, during the revelation and during the tribulation when he takes his full reign over the earth. Mount Zion is on earth. This is the second coming of Jesus at the end of the seven years. The 144,000 will gather to him and serve him in the thousand-year kingdom or what we call the millennial kingdom. Verse two, I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. The climactic events of the great tribulation will have a musical score. Think of certain movies you love and Realize the soundtrack played a significant role in telling the story. Uh, some movies, they're just so associated with their, with their soundtrack, uh, some beautiful music. Imagine the soundtrack that heaven has been preparing for uh, millennia uh, for these end times events. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. And so these guys have their own personal theme song. We see these four living creatures are a type of angels whose joy and job it is to worship the Lord day and night. We've, we've met them before. The elders are most likely a divine council of supernatural beings we re uh, read about, or we read about actually in several Old Testament passages. We encountered these guys in chapter four. Normally, uh, you know, folks teach that they are uh, representatives of the church, and so you see the church in heaven before the throne. When we studied this, we pointed out that nowhere in the Bible does it say who the 24 elders really are. They just are in heaven a couple of times before the throne in the Revelation. And best guess is that they are a type of divine council of supernatural beings because we do encounter those guys several times in the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 89, five verses five through seven, rather, uh, refer to them. And uh, we went into this uh, more deeply in our study in chapter four, if you wanna look online and, and capture that. So uh, that's who's in heaven with these guys. Uh, now, don't the 144,000 need to be in heaven to be singing before the throne? No. Whenever we sing, isn't it to God? Aren't we before him? Doesn't he hear it before his throne? We just came through a wonderful time of worship, singing together as a congregation. I think it went farther than the ceiling. I don't know about you. 
I mean, we do it because it's unto the Lord. It's for him, it's to him. And so a lot of people say, oh, the timing of this, the 144,000 are in heaven, they're a glorified body. No, they're on the earth singing their theme song at the end of the great tribulation, welcoming Jesus back to earth in his second coming. Now, it's a new song that gives us a chance to uh, speculate a little bit. Uh, one thing we would say is that we should not do things to seem new, or as we might say, hip. Does people still use the word hip today? I know we talk about hipster uh, things, and there are hipster churches. We're, we're not one, even though I have this great shirt. I mean, I think we, I think we could easily be a hipster church. But uh, anyway, um, it, it, we don't want to do new things just because they're new. And we have to recognize as human beings, sometimes we're just drawn to things because they're new. We might go someplace and, and you know, see something or another church in town or whatever. And it's like, wow, I, you know, we don't do it that way. It's new. We want to do it that way. Uh, so we want to be careful. Uh, we, we're not here to be hip. We don't want to be, uh, we want to be contemporary. We want to minister to folks. Uh, but we don't want to water down the word ever, right? I mean, because the, it's the gospel that's the power of God unto salvation, not our hip uh, way of presenting it. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of talk today about communicating with this generation and talking in their language. <laughs> I don't want to learn their language. I'm going to teach the Bible and try and be a little bit contemporary uh, as we do it. But, you know, it's the word itself. So we don't want to be new for the sake of newness. Neither should we be held back by the way we've always done things. God, the Holy Spirit, can and will guide us if we'll listen. Churches get bogged down, right? It's like, you know, why are we doing this? We always did this. This is the way we always do it. Can we try this? No. Why not? Because we're not going to. I mean, you know, you've maybe been to other churches. Maybe you think our church is like that. You know, I don't think we are, but uh, you, you don't want to just stick to tradition for tradition's sake. We can venture out, uh, you know, and so there's a balance. And the balance comes from listening to and following the leading of God, the Holy Spirit, being patient, uh, but also uh, being passionate about God. And so it says in verse four, these are ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the lamb. Now, these guys are untouchable by the forces of evil, but that protection would not extend to a wife and family. They are better off without a wife and family during the great tribulation. How many movies have you seen where the hero's family is kidnapped or killed? about every action movie, right? In the first few minutes, uh, you know, somebody's family member is kidnapped or killed, and then you have to have a certain skill set in order to, you know, get them back. And the rest of the movie is just about murdering people, right? So, uh, you know, so obviously this, you know, hey, the Lord finds guys that uh, aren't married uh, so that they can just do their job and their families don't get kidnapped. At certain times, celibacy is advisable. Celibacy is a gift, Paul the Apostle says. And when he writes about it in 1 Corinthians, he says, hey, I have that gift. I'd rather you be celibate so that you can serve the Lord without distraction. Nevertheless, it's not for everybody. But in the great tribulation for these guys, it will be advisable. Defiled with women sounds awful, 
like God is against sex or something, but it simply means rendered unclean through sexual contact. A Jew would immediately understand this to be a ceremonial uncleanness, not a moral one. In other words, there's nothing wrong with sex in marriage, but under the Old Testament law, certain behaviors that were not themselves sinful would nevertheless prohibit a worshiper from approaching God until a prescribed time had passed or a specific offering was made. So to emphasize the holiness of God, uh, there, were certain, there was a list of certain things. One of them was touching a dead body. Uh, another had to do with some sexual behaviors where you had to wait a period of time before you could bring your offering or you had to bring a special offering or that kind of thing. So this isn't a, a, a stab against marriage or sex. It, it's, it has to do with the ceremonial law. The 144,000 abstained from marriage and the marriage bed to remain undistracted in their mission. Athletes are encouraged to abstinence when training. Mick warned Rocky to stay away from that pet shop dame, as he called her, during his training for the upcoming fight with Apollo Creed. Women weaken legs, is what he said. You remember that? That's a great scene. I watched it over and over on YouTube. Rocky's kind of punching the bag, and these two teenagers come up, and they want his autograph, and he get out of here! He's, you know, and then he tells Rocky that women weaken legs. Think of legs, I'm going to go with this, think of legs as your walk with the Lord. I, can, I see illustrations everywhere. What weakens your spiritual legs? Could be a person, it could be a possession, it could be a place, it could be a practice, Whatever would weaken you in your service to the Lord, you might need to abstain from it for a time or for a long time. Uh, And so just give it some thought. When you read, they followed the lamb wherever he goes, again, John is looking forward after the second coming of Jesus to the earth to their work in the kingdom. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the lamb. First fruits are always the promise of a greater harvest to come. God uses these guys to bring forth more fruit as men, women, and children receive the Lord. Verse five, and in their mouths was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Lies and idolatry characterize the great tribulation. We read in 2 Thessalonians that there is something called the lie that people who follow the beast will believe. The 144,000 are without fault This could be translated without blemish. This is another technical phrase describing the sacrifices that were worthy of being brought to God. We are not Jews by descent, or at least most of us are not, and we are not the 144,000. God, the Holy Spirit, does seal us, and we do have the Lord's name written on us, and like the 144,000, we are clean and without blemish. In the book of Ephesians, we learn that Jesus says he will sanctify and cleanse us with the washing of water by the word and present us to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we should be holy and without blemish. And so the Lord sees the church and he sees you as a Christian as clean from the word and without blemish. Now, you and I know that we are not clean and without blemish, at least not totally, not yet, because we are in these unredeemed bodies. And so we must cooperate with Jesus by remaining clean and without blemish, and we do it by obeying him in the empowering and enabling he provides 
by the indwelling spirit. Dwight Eisenhower said, when you put on a uniform, there are certain inhibitions that you accept. Those of you who are military or former military or others who wear a uniform, you understand that there are responsibilities that come with that uniform. You are representing more than yourself. Jesus accepted many inhibitions when he put on human flesh and became a man. He did it willingly, joyfully for you. There is nothing I might have to give up for God that the Lord hasn't given up greater just in deciding to come to earth in the first place. Uh, and if it's for, uh, for me to serve him better, let's go for it. Supernatural beings undoubtedly can see his writing on us. Human beings can see it in a different way. The Apostle Paul calls us living epistles and says that other men read us. It's us, uh, up to us to determine what type of reading material we are. We want to endeavor to be more Bible and less Mad Magazine. And I would challenge you again, ask yourself, what publications do I represent in my life? If I ask, don't ask anybody this because it'll ruin friendship, but if you said, hey, if I said to you, hey, what publication do I represent? Some of you would be snarky and say, Coffee Monthly. That's okay, I've earned it. Uh, but the idea is that, you know, what, what do people see when they see you? What do people see when they see me? Uh, they don't see us written on, you know, like not, not literally, but by our actions and our attitudes, we do communicate uh, to others. Uh, and so let's, let's have them see Decision Magazine, for example, from Billy Graham, uh, rather than Cosmopolitan. Number two, talk to the lost knowing you have his fame to witness to them. Now, we endeavor in our study of the Revelation to highlight the grace and the mercy of God. This chapter does that in, in a wonderful way. God dispatches angels to preach the everlasting gospel to warn the lost not to align with the beast. And so verse six, then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. I delight in a well-executed flyover by the jets from LNAS, right? Have you, ever, have you ever been at a flyover? They're hard to coordinate because, man, those things are moving. But uh, for quite a while at the annual law enforcement memorial, the base would coordinate with the agencies and they would do a flyover. And it's... it's, it's simultaneously exciting and terrifying. The sound and the sound, you know, just everything about it. Well, here we have angel flyovers. And, and I, if, as far as being terrified, uh, I mean, this way more powerful than the jets that come out of the base. I mean, these are angels, loud voice. You, you know how loud you have to be to be heard by everybody on the earth? And they must be using some kind of universal translator too, right, from Star Trek because every tongue and people hears this. And so this is a fantastic event. Again, this is not a symbolic event. This is not radio waves going all over the earth. This is angels who are set free to do a fantastic flyover ministry. The gospel must be preached to the whole world before Jesus can return. That's a truism, but it's with regards to his second coming, not the rapture. 
The gospel does not have to be preached to every creature before the rapture, but it will be preached to every creature on the earth during the great tribulation. It is the everlasting gospel because the hour of judgment has come. Everlasting life in heaven or hell is always on the line, but in the great tribulation, it will be on the line as never before because the clock is counting down. I mean, you know, we, we tell people time is short, they need to get saved, but everybody thinks, well, okay, you know, I, I probably have time. When you're in the end of the tribulation, I mean, your time is short. You've just got a tiny, tiny bit of time if you don't get killed by one of the judgments. And so uh, it's a warning. But what a, what a gracious God we have to warn people and make sure that they understand. No one will stand before the Lord and say, I speak Tagalog and I didn't understand what you were talking about. The Lord will say, no, no, I had some angel flyovers and I'm specifically noted that they spoke to you. And so it's a, it's a, it's a token of God's grace. The angel here emphasizes God as creator. God provides, and I quote, the heavens to declare the glory of God and the firmament to show his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, night unto night knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. You know those as the opening words of Psalm 19. Creation demands a creator, and those who seek God will find him, the Bible says. Creation does witness to mankind. Merrill Unger calls creation the oldest testament. I like that. It's the oldest testament. It doesn't tell you everything you need to know, but neither does the Old Testament. And our understanding is that someone can understand that there is a God behind creation, a creator, and if they will seek him with their whole heart, they will be found by him because God has put eternity in our hearts, a longing for him, and he wants to meet that longing. Verse 8, another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. A literal city of Babylon will exist in the great tribulation. There's also going to be a false religious system called Babylon. We'll read all about their rise and fall in chapters 17 and 18. This is just a preliminary, ties everything together. As I said, the book sort of bounces around a little bit in between the trumpets and the bowls. The city and the system make all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The world wants you to get drunk on its excesses. Never underestimate your unredeemed body with its propensity to sin. It wants excessively. It lusts. It is a monster. It's unrelenting. But if you yield to the indwelling spirit, you can keep it at bay. Paul the Apostle said, I don't do what I want to do. I do what I don't want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. And then he went on to explain the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans chapter 8. The world, meaning the world system currently ruled over by Satan, tempts your flesh to indulge. And you cannot afford to give in to sinful indulgences because they will begin to dominate you. Verse 9, then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, stop there for a minute, a person must consciously choose to worship the beast, the Antichrist. An angel will warn those who inhabit the earth to not do so in language they cannot misunderstand. 
Our perspective on the mark is that first, a global socioeconomic system of cashless commerce will have been established. It will likely utilize a biometric identifier on the hand or forehead, something like facial recognition or palm vein scanning. Everyone will participate. Uh, in a sense, you'll be forced to participate because that's the only way to do business. Uh, you know, be like waking up tomorrow and the government says there's no cash, there's just your credit cards. And then after that, they say, hey, there's just going to be a mark that you can buy with. And, uh, you know, you don't have to participate, but if you don't, you won't be able to buy anything. And so it's kind of a weird forcing. Midway through the Great Tribulation, the beast demands to be worshipped. If a person refuses, then they won't be able to buy or sell or travel or work. They won't be able to do anything. Think of the pressure to swear allegiance to the beast when you are about to be cut off from society. You won't be able to buy groceries. It won't matter that there's a toilet paper shortage. You won't be able to buy it, even if there was abundance of toilet paper. And nobody will have cash. You can't buy stuff under the table. There's no bartering, really. You'll just be out there and, you know, lost. And they'll probably come after you anyway uh, and, and end your life. And so uh, this is what happens midway during the tribulation. But verse 10, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire awaits the beast. He, along with a second beast who assists him, are the first residents of hell confined there at the second coming of Jesus. Anyone who refuses the everlasting gospel will eventually eternally join them there. Verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. The patience of those who refuse the mark means their willingness to endure whatever earthly consequences follow. For multitudes, that will be martyrdom. They will be the dead who die in the Lord. On earth, trouble follow them in the form of mistreatment and then martyrdom in heaven. Their works will follow them and they will be blessed. Do you ever think of death as being blessed? The Lord says precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And so, there, you know, death is a blessing. Paul the Apostle said, I desire to be with Christ. We don't have a death wish. We're not looking to die uh, but at the same time, we're not afraid of it because as an enemy, death has been conquered and we should be a little bit homesick to see the, the place that Jesus is building for us. Now, at the end of verse 13, you're told the Holy Spirit speaks. That's huge. The Bible elsewhere describes him speaking, but not like this. In the church at Antioch, he spoke to the disciples to separate and send Paul and Barnabas to go out to preach the gospel. We're not told how he spoke to them, but we're pretty sure it wasn't in an audible voice. God the Holy Spirit does speak audibly here. His precious few words are what you'd expect him to say in his role as the comforter. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. God the Holy Spirit says yes. It's more than a word of agreement. It's a reminder that everything God has said in the Bible, every promise is yes and amen. It's a reminder that God's word cannot fail. 
And so the first thing that the comforter says is, yes, it's all true. The Lord loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love. He's forgiven you your sins. You're on your way to heaven. You're going to have a glorified body. You're going to live in the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. Eons upon eons into everlasting life. Yes. Everything God has promised you is yes. And then he talks about labors. According to Strong's Concordance, that means pain or trouble or weariness. Those give uh, give way to rest. It's as if God the Holy Spirit were singing that song to you. Soon your trials will be over. We'll meet in the golden city in the new Jerusalem. All our pain and all our tears will be no more. There are various approaches and systems of what you might call biblical counseling or discipleship. We need to take our cue from God the Holy Spirit. Godly counsel that results in genuine spiritual comfort should never fail to direct the heart to the believer's homecoming. And so eventually, in any counsel you give anyone, you need to end it by talking about going home to be with the Lord, that you have a wonderful future awaiting you. And I'll tell you one reason, there's many reasons, well, one reason why is because that's what the Holy Spirit does. But another reason is that you and I cannot promise each other that things are going to get better ever. And we want to. You know, somebody has a, a problem Somebody has a disease, an illness, a sickness. We want to say the Lord's going to make it all better soon. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be better. And, and sometimes not because you know what? You all know people who died or who are dying. You know what they need? The comfort they need? That they are going to be in heaven and that we're going to join them in heaven. And it's not a last-ditch effort to comfort people. It's the truth and it's exciting. You know, sometimes Christians don't know how to act around death. I've, I've yet to go to a really joyful, super joyful funeral where people actually worship, you know. And I've done a lot of funerals. I mean, I'm talking, but no matter how much we encourage people, hey, let's sing, let's really sing. Everybody gets held back. I'll tell you right now, if I die before you do, you'd better sing at my funeral. I mean, really sing like we do on a Sunday morning because I'm going to be on videotape listening. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, do you, you understand this? So when you counsel somebody, if there, if there isn't a future aspect to it, it falls short because no matter what's going on in my life, I need to be thinking about where I'm going and being with the Lord. Verse 14, then I looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. Another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap for the time has come for you to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. Jesus said of himself that the son of man will be seen coming upon the clouds of heaven and that he would send his angels to gather the elect. That's what's happening here. Jesus and the holy angels are depicted as reapers coming to harvest souls with sickles in their hand. The harvest is first compared to a crop of grain, then to a crop of grapes. Each focuses on a particular aspect of the final harvest of judgment at the second coming. The harvest of grain illustrates the separating of believers from non-believers. 
The harvest of grapes illustrates the crushing of the armies gathered against the Lord in the valley of Megiddo. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who has the sharp sickle, saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city. Blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Seven uh, mentions rather of sickles. Wielded by the mythical grim reaper, death is personified uh, as, uh, you know, as this guy coming like that with the, you know, skeleton face and all. But it's not the grim reaper. Angels will assist Jesus by gathering the human race and by separating believers from non-believers. More cowbell or not, non-believers should fear the reaper. First service was just blunted by that, but anyway. The blood of uh, verse 20 describes the battle of Armageddon at the Lord's second coming. Not gonna be much of a battle. Uh, The Lord destroys his enemies uh, and takes over. The harvest is overripe. That's uh, emphasized here a couple of times. Throughout history, extending into the great tribulation, God is patient, striving with sinners, seeking to save them. He's waiting and waiting and waiting to provide opportunity to be saved because the alternative is so drastic, it's so final, it's so tragic. One day his long suffering must end. And so we look at the world and we think it's overripe for judgment. It should have been judged 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. God could have stepped in and, and, and brought the great tribulation any of those times because of things that were going on on the earth, because of how men had rejected him. Now we're super overripe for judgment, are we not? I mean, it's just incredible the things that are going on in the world. How much worse can it get than it is? And the Lord says, I'm waiting because I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. Some of you, man, if the Lord had come in 2018, 2019, 2020, you wouldn't be saved. You'd be in the great tribulation. And so you're thankful for that long-suffering. The Apostle Peter said God's long-suffering must end. There will be a time when God resurrects and raptures the church and the tribulation begins afterwards. And we will see these, we will see from heaven these events take place. The church is not Jesus's posse. We're his bride, his building, we're his field, we're his body. We are the ones who spread his fame. His name is on us, It's visible to supernaturals. It's seen by our behaviors by mere humans. A.W. Tozer said this, if we cooperate with him in loving obedience, God will manifest himself to us. And that manifestation will be the difference between a nominal Christian life and a life radiant with the light of his face. In other words, a life that is testifying to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ.